Today, we're going to cover Matthew, we're going to cover the next parable. Uh, and the next parable is uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Can everybody hear me okay? This is loud enough? Speakers okay? All right. So the next parable is the uh, wheat and the tares. So we're going to we're going to do what we did last week with the parable of the sower. We're going to read the parable and then we're going to read Jesus's explanation of the parable. So we're going to cover we're going to read Matthew 13:24 through 30. Then we're going to skip over and read verses 36 through 43. That's where Jesus explains the parable. So uh, let's read those together. Uh, verse 24. <clears throat> Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, do you not, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then over to verse 36, where Jesus explains the parable. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And the disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out, of, send out His angels, and they will, they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, as we prepare to study, we ask that You be here with us today. Father, we ask that You be our teacher. We pray that the Holy Spirit will give us illumination and give us understanding, Father. Give us wisdom on what this means and how this applies in our lives. And We'll give You all the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when you read the first uh, verse here, you see uh, Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven. Now, one thing to remember, remember when you read kingdom of heaven, um, and we've also heard in other places where it says kingdom of God, these are not two different places. They are synonymous. They mean the same thing. So kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Um, uh, well, the one thing to note as to why Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven is remember Matthew was a devout Jew, uh, and so the Jews feared misusing God's name. I mean, they really, you know, they had other names because they did not want to misspeak or dishonor God's name, misuse God's name. And so that's probably why he said kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. So when we think about kingdom of heaven, we've talked about this earlier in the study. 
Um, it's especially uh, important now at Christmas time because we're about to celebrate the incarnation where the Word became flesh and came into this world. And it's as if the kingdom of heaven is breaking through into the world when He came. I mean, it just truly, if we could have seen what was going on in the supernatural world, in the, in the spiritual realm, if we could have seen what was happening, I, I think it would have been absolutely spectacular. I mean, it was spectacular in its own way, to the naked eye, but in the spiritual room, I just wanted, I just, I wish we could have been able to see that because I just know with this piece of heaven, this, the creator of heaven and earth breaking through and then coming through the veil and coming into, um, the physical world. So, um, think about it this way, you know, at, at the incarnation, Jesus was invading the enemy territory. Just think about that. When you think about the kingdom of heaven, he talks about the kingdom of heaven has come, kingdom of God has come. Uh, it's Jesus. He's he's an invader. He is invading the enemy territory. So let's read uh, verses 24 through 25. It says, And another parable he put to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. So just like he did last week with the parable of the sower, he uses an agricultural context. And so um, this that he talks about here, about uh, sowing good seed and then an enemy sowing in tares deliberately, was a common thing, unfortunately, in the ancient world. So when Jesus created, or when he started this parable, immediately this is something they know happens. So immediately they're listening. They're, okay, this, uh, this, this happens all the time. Uh, and so what was really going on here? This was the way that people sought vengeance on their enemies. You know, I'll, I'll show him. I'll go, uh, after he sows his seed in the field, I'll go in and deliberately sow in the tares so as to help ruin his crop. Uh, and sometimes they would even salt the fields. So they would get even worse. I mean, instead of sowing in the tares, they would also even sometimes salt the fields. And if you know, if you, um, if you've ever poured out salt on the ground, uh, you know what, it just, it kills the life there because it takes the oxygen out and it can't, can't do it and dries everything out. So it can't, you know, it just has a big problem. So this, this context, this, this illustration was easily recognizable. Verse 26, it says, but when the grain had sprouted and produced the crop, then the tares also appeared. So what happened? The weeds or the tares that had been sown in as seeds, looked almost identical to wheat. Remember we talked about sowing last time, about how they just broadcast seed out. So to the naked eye, you really couldn't even, you don't know that it's been done. That's kind of the point here. Um, and even when they started to sprout, the, the plant that was sprouting really looked almost exactly the same. So, you know, when you see the, the, the farmer who is, uh, who has, is planted or, or cast out the seed or sow the seed. When the crop starts coming forward, you really can't tell that there's even anything there. You just, I mean, or the, the tares anyway. You can just, you see a crop and it looks good. And so you don't even know really what's going on. It says in verse, uh, well, it says verse 26, it says, then the tares also appeared after the crop was produced. So in verse 27 and 28, it says, so the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. 
So the crop comes to produce, and then they can see, hey man, there's there's wheat and there's good seed and bad seed here. There's wheat and there's tares. Something has gone wrong. And so we see the... Something went wrong. Um, so we see the servants coming now to the owner saying, you know, did you not sow good seed? What Did you mess up? Did you sow bad seed here in your field? And of course, the owner or the master of the servants said to them, immediately an enemy has done this. So the servants did not really understand what was going on. They see wheat, they see tares. What's going on? Didn't you sow good seed? The master or the owner knew exactly what was going on. He knew exactly. He says, an enemy has done this. In verse 28 and 30, the servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. So upon seeing that the field there, we've got a, we've got wheat, but we've also got tares. The first question of a good servant is, shall we go get the tares out now? Shall we go ahead and, and let's clean the field up? And the master says, no, don't do that. And his response was, let them grow together until the harvest. And he says it, uh, so uh, he wants them to continue to grow together because he does not, uh, because the servants, if they were to take the tares out, they could also damage the wheat. And so that's his answer. His answer is, we don't want to do that. We're going to save it and then we'll separate it when it comes to harvest time. And then he says, at the harvest, what he's going to do with the tares. At harvest, we will gather the tares and we will do what? Burn them. He will burn them, and then he's going to gather the wheat into his barn. So there's the parable. It's a simple agricultural context illustration that everybody in this day would understand. The context, I mean, which is a point of application for us. Living context is extremely important. Living in this world as we continue as we sow seed in this world. We also need to understand people's context and where they're coming from. There's a point of application there. We can, we need to know where people are. We need to try to understand their context. We need to know where they're coming from because when we do that, then we know we, we can, we can be more effective, I guess, in our method, in our delivery. Um, and it's very, very important to do that. So Jesus knew the context. He offered a parable that people would recognize. So that's the parable. You have it. Now, on to the explanation. Because this is where it gets interesting. So the disciple, just like the parable of the sower, the disciples say, Lord, uh, please explain this to us. We don't understand. Please explain it. And so in verse 37 through 43, we have his explanation. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. So in this explanation, Jesus highlights three areas. Jesus offers a brief explanation of what He's doing or His work in the world. He talks about the conflict with Satan. And then He offers some details about the end of the age. The three things Jesus really addresses here or He talks about. So let's talk for a moment about his uh, uh, about who is actually sowing. Jesus in verse 37 says, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Last week when we talked about the parable of the sower, we uh, mentioned that the one who's doing the real work in ministry is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is doing the real work. He is the one who prepares the ground. And He is the one who regenerates people. So, in the parable of the sower, when Jesus offered that parable, the sower represented Christ Himself. And so we see also in this parable, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, is Christ. Jesus is saying, I am the one who is sowing the good seed. Calvin offers a helpful uh, comment here on this verse. He says, Let us therefore remember that, that the gospel is preached not only by Christ's command, but by His authority and direction. In short, that we are only His hand and that He alone is the author of the work. What we can take away from some, as, as part of some application here is that we are simply, we have a role in this. Okay, these parables are, they're talking about what God's doing. But there's also a role for us, but we are simply instruments in His hands. We are to follow His outline, His direction. Christ is the one sowing the good seed. We are to just, so we, we can, we can really get caught up and we can get off base a lot of times if we forget that. Because then we think about, and we talked about this last week, because the parable of the sower is extremely comforting to pastors because they know that they're not the ones who are, it's not their responsibility to regenerate people. The Word of God, the Holy Spirit does that, and so their job is simply to preach the Word in a way that's clear and presents the Word and presents the truth. And so we're reminded here again, we are simply instruments, servants of God are simply instruments in His hand. And He has given us direction. He has given us uh, commands about how to live and how to minister in this world. And we have but one choice, but to follow His outline. We can't take matters into our own hands. We don't do that. We, what we're doing when we do that, we're forgetting who God is. Remember, that's the first big problem in our prayers. We forget who God is. Remember that. That is always, that's every day. If you want to think about how you struggle, what you struggle with, you struggle because you forget who God is. 
That's why you struggle. You forget how high He is. You forget how low you are. You forget how high His thoughts are. You forget how miserable your thoughts are. You forget how completely dependent you are upon Him for absolutely everything. And you start trusting in yourself to provide and meet your own needs. That's when you get in trouble. That's when I get in trouble. We forget who God is. Since it is the Son of Man who is sowing the good seed, and what we now have, of course, in the church age is we have the Word of God that is the, is the words of Jesus that we have before us that ministers put forth before the people week in and week out. And that is the reason uh, Dr. Sproul in his commentary said it. I completely agree with him that the role of, of, of preaching is the role of the preacher, the best way, is expository preaching. And when we say expository preaching, I hope everybody knows what we're saying, just preaching through the Word of God, straight through it. Pick a book of the Bible, preach through it. That's expository preaching. Uh, previous pastor, you know, Lane, that's, that was his practice. You know, went through, pick a book, preach through it. I agree with Dr. Sproul that that is the way you should preach. Why is that? Well, because, first of all, it acknowledges who God is. And it takes the idea out of, it takes the, if, if you don't, let me, let me put it this way. If you don't do that, if a preacher does not preach expository, usually they're in some sort of series or they, sometimes they kind of jump around and it's just, it can really quickly become what the preacher thinks that you need to hear as people. Now, remember what I said earlier, why we get in trouble? We forget who God is. Who knows what you need to hear? The preacher? Okay, there may be some examples where the, he, he knows a specific situation that you know somebody needs to hear about, but he doesn't know that about everybody, can he? he? He has no way to know that. So what does he do? He preaches the Word. And then the Holy Spirit applies it in everybody's life. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. The preacher cannot do that. His role is to preach the Word. And then rest that the Holy Spirit is applying it. That's remembering who God is. He, God, Christ is the, it, it, that's one thing you, you will, when we come through these parables, I hope that you have a much higher understanding of who Christ is and His role. I hope that you, when you get through these parables, you just, you kind of get, you get put in your place in a really good way. I hope you're humbled by this. I hope you remember that there is, I, so many times I take things and I forget who God is and I, and, I, and I make it about what I think is best. And we get in trouble because He has given us guidance. He's given us an outline. He's told us how we are to live. And remember what our brother Sammy Thomas always said, understanding comes after obedience. We, so many times we are not going to understand how this is going to work out. But when we obey the Word, we're trusting in Him that He's God, I am not. He is in control, I am not. And He will work it out. And nine times out of ten, when you get the... You know it, you sin it in your own life when you obey. You have no, you, sometimes you have very little understanding of how it's going to work out. Most times you don't. But then, after the benefit of time, you see God's hand at work. And then what does that do? That just draws you closer to Him, doesn't it? Lord, thank You. 
I obeyed. I denied what I thought was best. Submitted to you, followed your word. And look what you have done. You have made everything beautiful in its time. So when we look at this parable, we have one question, I think. The question remains, when Jesus says that the field is the world, is he referring to the world in general or is he referring to the church? Okay, it says, um, it says in verse 37, Jesus says, the field is the world. Okay, he says, the field is the world. The good things are that, and he explains it. So the question is, is Jesus referring to the world in general or is he referring to the church? So when we read the field is the world, it seems easy to say he's talking about the world in general. However, some commentators would say that the language that he uses here is similar to, to the language Jesus uses when he talks about problems in the church. So, last week, we talked a little bit about, or we mentioned, the visible and the invisible church. Now, we know, because if, if he's talking about the church here, he's saying there's wheat and tares in the church. That should not surprise us. That should not surprise us. So we know that everyone who is part of the visible church, they are on a roll, a member, a communing member of a church. We know that not everybody that's on the roll is part of the invisible church, the elect, the, the universal church. We know those two are not the same. There are tares among the wheat. Now, as you consider which way you think maybe he's talking about, the world in general or the church, the reality is whichever interpretation is true, the application is the same. So that's comforting. So in terms of application, when it comes to this parable, the church's mission is still the same. So whether he's talking about, okay, there's tares among the wheat in the world, or is he talking in the context of the church, at the end of the day, it makes, it doesn't make, the application doesn't change when it comes to what we are to do in response of this parable. We are to do what? Sow seed. We are to preach the gospel. We are to spread the good news. Regardless of how you interpret this parable, that application is the same. That is your response to this parable. Remember the last question that the disciples asked Jesus before he ascended. You remember? It's over in, um, we read it in Acts. He says, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You remember that? What was Jesus' answer? It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put under His own authority. There are some things we will not know. We will not know who the wheat and the tares are for sure. Now, we could go into a discussion. Uh, it's a rab- well, it's not a rabbit trail. It's a good discussion about covenant theology and how that works out and what we believe. Um, that would be another whole other lesson um, because when we we embrace covenant theology, we treat 
the members of the church as believers. We raise our children as believers. Um, but uh, we all know at the end of the day, we don't know for sure. A hundred percent sure. Okay, we, we can have a really good idea, but only God knows that. Only God knows whose names are in the book of life with absolute and 100% sure, uh, uh, certainty. Now, Dr. Sproul, in his interpretation, he believes this parable is talking about tares, uh, the non-believers in the presence of the, in the, in, as far as the church application. He thinks that this is the presence of wheat and, the presence of wheat and tares in the visible church. Now, is, I, I hate to even say this, because with fear, great fear and trepidation, I would disagree with him on this. I know I, I had to think a long and hard. I, I, I read this thing and I read through it a couple of times. I read through the parable again, and I actually would disagree with Doctor Sproul here. But I am not a theologian, praise the Lord. Well, not to his caliber anyway. Uh, so I would submit if I needed to. Uh, but um, so I, 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 I look at it that he's talking about the entire world. But again, the application is the same. Sproul offers that um, opinion based on the fact that there are tares already covering the world. We know that. And so the devil wants to plant them where? He doesn't, in other words, he doesn't really want to plant them in the world because they're already there. He wants to plant them in the church. Because he, he's already got those. You know, there's the, the tares, the non-believers in the world. He's already got them. He's, so he's talking about the enemy planting well, he's already got the world. He's the ruler of the world, you know, so to speak. Uh, but, but he wants to plant tares in the church, and I, I could definitely see that. I mean, I definitely yes, he wants to do that. When we think about the visible and the invisible church, um, it was Augustine who introduced this concept of visible and invisible, or invisible, excuse me. And some people tried to say that Augustine meant something different. That he meant that when he says invisible church, he was talking about those who believe but are not part of a local church. That's what people would say that he meant. He said they can, they basically said, well, they can worship God on their own. Now, this is what people are trying to interpret what Augustine meant when he said visible, invisible. Now, we don't hold to that. We hold Visible meaning on a church role, invisible meaning the church universal, the elect of God, the ones who are truly in the church is what we mean. Now, there are some extreme cases when somebody could be part of the invisible church, meaning elect, and not be a part of a local church. Okay, but we would say, or I would say, and I hope you would agree, those are extreme cases. What's an example of that? Maybe uh, somebody who gets converted in some prison camp and, and they cannot, they're forbidden to be a part of a church maybe. Do you see kind of where I'm going with that? Where there's something pro- prohibiting them from being part of a local body and they so they could be elect but not part of a church. So there's some extreme cases, I guess, where you could say that somebody is saved and not part of a local church. But Christians, believers, are charged with making their faith visible. There are, in the Bible, you have no freedom to be a secret service Christian. It does not give you that freedom. Matthew 7.20 says, By their fruits you will know them. 
That is a charge about the elect. And I would add here that if a church member, somebody in the visible church, on a role of a church, if they had absolutely no desire to be with the church, then it's very possible they are not saved at all. To that person, it is a social event. This is extremely difficult where we live in southern United States because we are in the Bible Belt and for a long time, it's changing, but for a long time, people, everybody went to church. Now, could we say we were more religious then? Okay, maybe you could make that argument, but we couldn't say that everybody was saved. So, in our context, where we live in rural America, southern America, a lot of times it is social. It's, well, I better be there because I know I'm supposed to be there. I really don't want to be there. I'd rather be doing something else or whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a go, no-go kind of thing. It really doesn't make a difference. Well, if I miss it today, I really don't care. I'm, I'm telling you, believe, regenerated people want to be with the church. They have a desire to be in the church and be with the body to gather with the saints. Because that is the closest thing they get to heaven on earth. Is gathering with the saints. So somebody who has been made alive by the Holy Spirit has that desire within them to go be a part of the community of the church. Because God has made them alive. Our Sunday worship is heaven on earth. I hope you see that when you gather with the saints. I hope you see that when you sit under preaching and singing and prayer that this is this is our foretaste. This is where we get grace. We talked about means of grace last week. This is where we experience that taste. This is where we can forget about all the trouble that we have during the week. We can gather with the saints. We can be loved on for who we are. We can Our sins, our petty things are overlooked because we love one another deeply. We submit to one another. We overlook the trivial matters where maybe we disagree or we don't like what somebody wears or we don't like what they say. Who cares? We're in the body. We love each other. We look over those things. Love covers a multitude of sins. And we can gather together. And we can submit to one another. And we have true fellowship. And I would also add that if it does not provide that for you, then there's something wrong somewhere. That is a matter of prayer. Well, quickly, because we're running out of time, and I apologize. What about uprooting the tares? Well, this is where church discipline comes in. Well, wait a minute, Jason. Jesus said, no, don't gather up the tares. Wait until the harvest. Well, the reality is that most times we can't tell the difference between the tares and the wheat. Those are left to the harvest. Jesus will decide. He knows and He will separate. But there are times when certain things happen that we are called to exercise church discipline. And so the, we, and we know the, the process by that, which that is administered. We find it in Matthew 18. Uh, the grounds for uh, the process for church discipline. If there is a brother or sister caught in some sin. Notice, notice he, says, he says caught in some sin. Not, this is not, he said something I didn't like. 
she said something that offended me. That's not a matter of church discipline. Okay? This is when a brother or sister is caught in some sin. This is a serious offense here. Something that is, you see it as a pattern in their life that is going to lead, it's going down a road where it shouldn't go. It's repeated behavior. It's something that you know it has to be addressed that God will not tolerate. There are two main purposes for church discipline. One is to purify the church from scandal. The other is to reclaim those brothers and sisters who have fallen in serious sin. Because the motive for church discipline is restoration. The motive is restoration. The end, we know, the end of the process, the culmination, if if you go to a brother or sister, they don't listen, they don't hear you, then you take a couple more with you. If they don't hear you, then you come to the church. And if they still will not repent, if they refuse to repent, they are excommunicated, they are cast out, they are treated like non-believers. But they are not left there. Because we always... Even if excommunication, which that's the extreme case of church discipline, even when that happens, we still want them back. We still want them back. We want them back in the church. So, the fact remains that when we think about wheat and tares, whichever side you come down on, on as far as the interpretation of this parable, the fact is they are... The fact is they are saved and they're unsaved people sitting in our church today. And it is challenging for pastors sometimes because if you notice, and I'll make this quick because the bell is rung, some churches have an altar call every Sunday. And there is an important part of evangelism. But remember one thing about the church gathered on Sunday morning. Who is it a gathering for? It's a gathering of the saints So, preachers preaching are preaching, assume, presumably, to the saints. Now, so, is there messages that are certain elements of evangelism in that? Yes, it does happen. Sure. Because every preacher knows that there are wheat and tares in his congregation. And then, yes, then that prayer is that they will be saved. But that is not the primary reason for the gathering of the saints. As a preaching, it is it is the, the preaching to saved people. We need to close. We have run out of time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Father, again, we ask for your wisdom. Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts to give us understanding and know us, teach us how to apply this learning in our lives each and every day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.